Please take your copy of God's Word and let's turn together to Ecclesiastes, excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're beginning at verse 16. We're going to read to chapter 4, verse 6. One of the things you'll discover if you were to study this book for yourself and read various commentaries is there's not a whole lot of agreement on how these sections work. And part of that's because Ecclesiastes in sections feels a little bit like the book of Proverbs. Um, this section that we're going to read feels that way towards the end, um, especially when we get to chapter 7, chapter 8, it's going to feel that way. And so some commentators will take uh, chapter 3 to the end and then pick up with chapter 4, but, but I think we'll see together, together this morning how this section hangs together. Because, uh, as I'm going to say, the, the preacher is naming things that, that cause us to taste death, but, he, but he, he's doing this so that we might see the world as it actually is, not as, not as we wish it to be. He, he's, he's doing this ultimately to teach us what true wisdom is, and true wisdom is only found in, in running over and again to our faithful Savior, to the God who's come to us in Jesus Christ. That's what I hope we'll see this morning as we look at this portion of God's Word. But in order for that to happen for us, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask Him for His help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come asking that you would come among us by the power of your Holy Spirit and do your work. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes of faith this morning, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. Or there's much here that might cause us concern. Indeed, we, we feel the weight of what we're going to hear. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would feel the weightiness of it all, so that we might be driven by, the, by word and spirit to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, grant us this, we ask, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves, they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All, all, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows? whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both, is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil 
and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the summer of 2008, the rock band Coldplay released their fourth album that actually had a dual title. It was called Viva La Vida or Death and All Its Friends. And that dual title was chosen from two songs on the album. One that became a hit single, Viva La Vida. The other was the final track of the album. Um, Perhaps you didn't get all the way to the end, or maybe you just kind of went and listened to Viva La Vida. It was on the radio a ton. But that final song is actually incredibly profound. Death and all its friends pictures lovers who decide to get married. And, and they, they speak of their determination not to fall in a downward spiral that would make them taste death. And the final chorus of the song goes, No, I, I don't want to battle from beginning to end. I don't want a cycle of recycled revenge. I don't want to follow death and all its friends. Again, I think these words are profound because so much of our lives under the sun feel as though they are following death and all his friends, whether it's because of bitterness or anger, whether it's because of fighting and rage in our relationships, whether it's because of the bitter recycling of, of, of resentment and revenge. Whatever it may be, the fact of the matter is, is that life under the sun feels as though we taste death and all his friends. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he knows this. And in, in fact, what he's trying to do for us here in this passage that, that has a number of bracing things in it is, is he wants us to see reality as it is, not reality as we wish it was or we, we, we desire it to be. This actually is the world we know. It is a world of death. He's already talked about that. We, we, we saw it in chapter 2, verse 14, and chapter 2, verse 16. He's going to talk about it again in chapter 9, starting in verse 2, but he'll mention it again in chapter 9, verse, verse 12. The preacher wants us to, to, to recognize that life in this world, life under the sun, means death. And he's, he's doing this not to be morbid, Rather, he, the preacher is speaking of death and all his friends in order to shake us out of our sentimental views of life in this world. Because the reality is, as the writer to the Hebrews points out, it's appointed to man once to die. The reality is, as the Proverbs tell us, that we must not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day will bring. The reality is, as the preacher himself will say in chapter 9, verse 12, man does not know his own time. And so we do ourselves no favors not to think about death. Death is real, and it is coming to all of us unless Jesus returns. But it's not just the reality of death that the preacher wants us to grapple with. 
It's also the larger, broader culture of death in which we live, in which we move and have our being. It's not just death, but all his friends as well that come into view. This, this culture of death, it was actually Pope John Paul II who, who first used that language in a justly famous, famous encyclical. John Paul said, it's no less true that we are confronted by an even larger reality, which can be described as a veritable structure of sin. This reality is characterized by the emergence of a culture which denies solidarity, that is solidarity with one another, and in many cases takes the form of a veritable culture of death. This culture is actively fostered by powerful cultural, economic, and political currents, which encourage an idea of, of society excessively concerned with efficiency. Looking at the situation from this point of view, it, it's possible to speak of a in a certain sense of a war of the powerful against the weak. A life which would require greater acceptance, love, and care is considered useless or, or held to be an intolerable burden and is therefore rejected in one way or another. In this way, a kind of conspiracy against life is unleashed. Did you hear those phrases? A culture of death? A conspiracy against life? What, what John Paul II is, is observing is, is exactly what the preacher is describing. A culture of death. Death in all his friends. That, that typifies for us what reality really looks like. Reality of life under the sun. Well, the fact of the matter is there's a number of things that, that can cause us to taste death. The preacher here in this passage, he, he mentions three in particular. The first thing that, that makes us taste death is wickedness. Look at what the preacher says at the beginning of the section. Back there in chapter 3, verse 16. You see it? He says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. The preacher here is complaining of, about those places where one would expect to find impartial justice where one would expect to find right behavior according to clear standards. What's that place? What's the law courts? In the law courts, one would expect to find justice impartially given. One would expect to find right behavior measured against a standard. But instead, what do you find? The preacher tells us injustice, wickedness. The innocent are judged guilty. The guilty are judged innocent. The rule of law is abused so that the law keepers are punished and they reward by way of corruption the lawbreakers. Because this is reality. This is, this is the way the world is and it's utterly outrageous. It, it demands redress. We think to ourselves, someone somewhere ought to hold people accountable. We've known what that's like here in our own city, haven't we? We've seen this, this bizarre revolving door of those who commit crimes, are arrested, are let out with no bail or with small bail only to go out and commit the same crimes again. We've seen those who've been indicted for murder, not brought to trial, released only to commit the same crimes again. And we cry out, this should not be. This is, in, 
this is outrageous. This is intolerable. A world in which there is wickedness and injustice, it, it cannot be. It makes us taste death. But when we taste this death-like sentence in the present, this world of injustice, a world of wickedness where justice is not served, it, it makes us wonder if we're no better than the animals. It makes us wonder if we're no better than the beasts. That's why the preacher says in verse 18, he, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see themselves are but beasts. If that's the case, in fact, if, if we are just like beasts, we have something in common with the animals, something in common with the beasts. Namely, we die. That's, that's what the preacher says. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. That phrase there at the end, all are dust, to dust they will return. The preacher's reaching back again to Genesis. This time to Genesis chapter 3, where God brings his sentence upon Adam and his posterity because of Adam's injustice, because of the disobedience in the matter of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God curses the serpent. God curses the ground, the earth. But God issues punishment to Adam. What's the punishment? Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's the punishment. You shall surely die. And so we see injustice causes us to taste death because the injustice of this world, it reminds us and connects us back to the injustice of our first parent, Adam, to the reality of death that entered the world at that moment. At, at that moment. Romans chapter 5 said that through one man, death has entered the world. Well, who's that one man? It was Adam. Why? Because of his injustice. Because he violated God's law. Instead of doing what was right, he did what was not right, what was unrighteous. And so he, he dies, and in his train, we all die. And mere human perception and reason, we can't find out about the afterlife. The preacher goes on to say in verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Who can know that? Well, the, the preacher is going to tell us later in his book in chapter 12, verse 7, that our spirit does in fact go back to God after we die. But that's a matter of faith. That's a matter of biblical re revelation. It's not a matter of empirical observation. All of this causes us to taste death the wickedness of our own hearts, the injustice of our culture. But there's a second thing the preacher tells us causes us to taste death, and that's oppression. Look at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the sign of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So here's another factor, uh, another reality that causes us to taste death, oppression. Oppression, which is the accumulation without regard to the nature, needs, and rights of other people. 
The oppressors are able to get away with it. Why? Because they have power. Power to yield against those who stand against them. The oppressed, uh, what's their reaction to it all? Well, tears. Twice were told by the preacher they had no one to comfort them. That there's no one who came to take up their cause. No one who, who could, with the promise of their own power, stand against the oppressors. And, and so this, this reality of oppression leads us to taste death. The preacher says, I, I thought that the dead who were already dead were more fortunate than those who were alive. And, and those who've never been, those who've never been born, are, are better than everyone because they've not seen this evil. They've not seen such oppression. And so this causes us to taste death. Death has these friends, wickedness, oppression, both of which are driven by envy. That's the third friend. Chapter 4, verse 4, the preacher says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after when envy is the fuel that feeds the fire of human striving, feeds the fire of, of human grasping, private self-interest that seeks its own, but also seeks what the neighbor has for its own. Envy says not simply, what is mine is mine. Envy actually says, what's, actually what's yours should be mine. And, and that's the fuel that causes us to taste death. When we experience the envy of others, their self-interest, their, their brutal competition in the, marketplace, uh, in the marketplace, it makes us want to just simply step back. Perhaps we fold our hands, somehow uh, get ourselves out of the world as it is. But, but the preacher tells us that, that that can't happen. It's actually foolish. In, in verse 5, he says, the fool folds his, hand, his hands and eats his own flesh. If, if we simply withdraw from the world as it is, we'll end up starving ourselves. We'll, we'll end up killing ourselves by starvation. Now, I don't know, I've spent 10, 15 minutes talking. This isn't really hopeful, is it? This has been a lot of a downer. But, I mean, just, it is. This is a hard word. But the preacher's trying to do us a favor. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to, to help us see Life as it is. Death comes to us with all of his friends, with wickedness, with oppression, with envy, and seems to mock our hopes for life and glory, for, for justice and righteousness, seems to mock above all else our hope and longing for joy. And it causes us to wonder if this is all there is. Is this all there is for life under the sun? Well, I think what the preacher's up to is not just to help us see life as it is. He wants us to see life as it is so that we are driven out of ourselves to not simply content ourselves with death. These things that make us taste death should make us long for life. Because as we've already seen, God, is, God has made all things beautiful in his time. As we saw last time, God has put eternity into our hearts. And with, with, with beauty and eternity come time and eternity, beauty and glory, truth, righteousness, and above all, judgment and salvation. In fact, the preacher's sense of the injustice of it all, his outrage at the injustice of life under the sun, makes him long and causes us to long for judgment. 
Did you notice chapter 3, verse 17? The preacher says there, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. You see, we know. We know that there will come a day when God will act to set everything to rights again. When all of our moments, all our times will be brought to account. There will be a day when God will say, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God will set the world to rights. Judgment is coming. Evil will be dealt with. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Well, here's the thing. God will judge the wicked, but the preacher says here, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. In other words, everyone will experience the judgment of God. I mentioned the writer to the Hebrews earlier, it's appointed to man once to die. The rest of that is, it's appointed to man once to die, and then the judgment. Jesus himself said, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Even more, there's the reality that there's punishment beyond judgment. Part of God setting the world to rights again is through a real punishment of those of us who are unjust, who are oppressors, who are enviers, which of course includes all of us. Jesus told us that our anger will send us to hell. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Our lust will, will send us to hell. That's why we should be willing, Jesus tells us, to cut off everything that causes us to lust, which is better than your whole body being thrown into hell. Our hands, wrongly used, can cause us to go to hell. Jesus himself tells us, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And so if, if judgment is real, and it is, and if hell is real, and it is, well, then God setting the world to rights again is not necessarily a good thing. It can simply be another thing that causes us to taste death. Unless, unless there's someone who has tasted death for us. Unless there's been a substitute unless the substitute who's tasted death for us actually offers us a way of salvation. And the good news is there is. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 9 says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, the good news is that God, through Jesus Christ, took on humanity, entered into our condition of dust. Jesus knew injustice and oppression, the envy and brokenness of the world. He knew the opposition of the flesh and the devil. And Jesus took on death. He tasted it for all his people so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus defeated death. Defeated death through the resurrection. He defanged death. He dismantled death. So that all those who trust in him, when we come to our dying day, we can shout out, death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And on that judgment day, after we die, when every thought, word, and deed will come before our God, those who've trusted in Jesus Christ, who've put their, their hearts rest upon him, we have no need to fear, no need to be ashamed, no need to be concerned about judgment day. Because on that day when we give an account, we'll point to Jesus. We'll point to his nail-pierced hands. We'll point to his record of righteousness. And we'll say, Jesus, you are my only hope. Those wounds you bear, they're my only hope. That record of righteousness that you achieve, that's my only hope. I've put my trust in you. You're my only hope. You're my only comfort in life and in death. And so with that last day, there'll be no fear, only hope. On that last day, not just judgment, but, but salvation. And friend, because we live with this confidence, not only do we not fear death, nor do we fear the judgment, we don't fear the culture of death around us. Rather, as the preacher tells us here in this passage, we're content. We're content with the good gifts of God. Our work, our handful of quietness, we affirm life in the present, even in the face of the, world can, of the worst the world can offer us, because we've known eternal life through Jesus Christ. The life of the age to come has invaded the present and has caused us not just to, to long for life, but to know that this long for life is ours already in Jesus Christ. I mentioned at the beginning Coldplay's album, Viva La Vida. Um, those of you who've seen the album cover, the, the artwork for the album cover, you're aware that it's the form of a famous painting painted by Eugene Delacroix called Liberty Leading the People. It was painted to, to commemorate the 1830 French Revolution, but, but that painting's actually on the cover of the album, of Coldplay's album. It's not actually Delacroix's album, uh, painting. It was actually painted by a modern Mexican artist, a lady named Frida Kahlo. Um, she created that painting, uh, the, the, the uh, replication of Delacroix's famous painting with Viva La Vida painted on top. She created it as part of her testimony in the face of her deep struggle with polio. Through most of her life, she's had a broken spine most of her life unable to, to hardly move without chronic pain. In the face of death and all of death's friends, she, she took this painting of liberty, and as she painted it, she was crying out, long live life. But friends, for those of you who put your trust in Jesus, you have an even greater reason to shout the same thing to shout long live life in the face of death and all his friends because you've trusted in Jesus. You've trusted in one who's tasted death on your behalf who through the suffering of death has set you free from the fear of death. Not just the death to come, but the culture of death around you so that as you go through this life, this life under the sun, and when you come to your dying day, you can do so shouting long live life. Because you're not held captive by death and all his friends. You've been set free by Jesus. And friends, that is good news. Thanks be to God. Would you be, pray with me, please? Almighty God, we bless you. We bless you that through Jesus Christ, you give us hope in this life under the sun. 
even though death and all its friends confronts us over and again. Yet because we trust in you, because we hope in you, because we've, we've found a resting place in you, you've set us free. You allow us to cry out before a watching world, long live life. Lord, grant us this grace this morning. Renew our hope and confidence in you, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take